to be welcome listeners to the 148th episode of the goods a film podcast we have a special guest with us and that is gargus who i think it's gargus's what fourth time on the pod fifth something like that fourth time fifth movie and the line that i just said to be or not to be in which Hamlet contemplates suicide, I don't think is in the movie that we're discussing today. I can't remember, to be honest, but we'll talk through it because the film we are discussing is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, a 1990 adaptation of a play from, is it the 60s? Is that right? Yes. Okay. And we also have Brian out there. Brian, it sounds like you've been pretty busy recently, Brian. Yeah, it's coming towards the end of a semester, and I got a lot of projects that I got to be working on. But I made it here. I do have some familiarity with with Hamlet and the kind of sidecar projects that have sprung up in the intervening centuries. Well, I guess let's let's let Gargus say hi. So, Gargus. Welcome back, and and how are things going over in Gargus world? Yeah, things are going pretty good for me. You know, a lot of the projects that I've been working on in my spare time over the last few years have kind of slowed down as I've been asking myself, well, you know, do I want to keep throwing myself at this with the same level of energy, or do I want to take time to look at and do other things? So a little bit of a transitory period, and that sort of questioning of, you know, what do I want to be doing with my life right now is, I think, very relevant to the film I've brought on. So that's nice. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's... We'll we'll need to parse through the philosophy of this play and this movie a little bit. And I, I think you'll be able to help us do that, Gargus. I should hope I'll be able to. So today I published a review on thegoodsreviews.com of the 1948 adaptation of Hamlet in which I admitted that prior to this past week, I had literally not read Hamlet. I had not seen any adaptation of Hamlet, any staging of Hamlet. So I was flying and blind this week. Of course, I've read a couple of plays by Shakespeare, seen plenty of plays. I've seen 10 Things I Hate About You, which is Taming of the Shrew. You know, so I got most of the essentials down. But no, I'm just kidding. But... This was new for me this week. So um, I, I watched the 1948 uh, Lawrence Olivier Hamlet, and then I watched the four-hour Eternity version by Kenneth Branagh. Is it Branagh? Branagh? I think it's Branagh. Um, I think it's Branagh. Bran- Branagh? Branagh? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know how you pronounce his name. It's sometimes the, the way they mushed letters together 
over in the United Kingdom. It's actually Kenny Brananahay. <laughs> Continuing my proud tradition of bringing on movies by people whose names we can't pronounce. <laughs> Jan Svjankmeyer, something like that. <laughs> Kenneth Brandelana Ding Dong, something like that. Yeah. And I really liked Hamlet. Now back back onto the play. I, I or the movie, I guess. I liked it. I did like the 48 version and I liked the the long 1996 one even more. So we can maybe talk a little bit about Hamlet as we go. I think that it might be good to have a little bit of grounding in that play before we jump into Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, just because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is very naturally in direct dialogue with Hamlet and its legacy. Yeah, I definitely don't think I would have gotten very much at all out of the play if I hadn't seen Hamlet, or, or let me phrase that differently. I would have been extremely confused and thrown off if I had just been going in with absolutely no Hamlet background. And this despite Rosencrantz and Guildenstern showing you basically the entire plot of Hamlet several times over to varying degrees. So I read Hamlet back in senior year of high school for English literature class. And we also read the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead play. Oh, interesting. And now watching... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I'm thinking just how long ago that really was. This is the 15th anniversary. I guess, what do they call it? Reunion. 15th reunion coming up this week for high school. Are you going to go to it, Brian? I'm going to go, yeah. My wife is in your high school class, but we are traveling for Thanksgiving and she will not be able to make it, unfortunately. But in that literature class, they... So... The English classes senior year at our high school were split into two factions, and you could do the creative writing class that emphasized writing, obviously, and the literature class that emphasized reading books and writing like analysis papers. And so I did the literature one, and we read like maybe 12 books over the course of the semester. It was a lot of books. And then we had to do some kind of final project. And for my final project, I wrote a, a puppet show that incorporated at least one character from every book. And it was like this, this lore, this like shared universe that had characters interweaving. And it was pretty complex. I made a lot of puppets. Uh, I don't know if any form of that script still exists, but I was proud of it. I was going to say, yeah. So what, Hamlet was in that one? So I think a couple Hamlet characters made it in, but the main Hamlet character that was in the mix was Ophelia. And the main Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead character was the player, who is this actor who kind of follows them around. Yeah. The leader of the Tragedians, is that what they're called? The troop that we encounter? Yeah, the Tragedians. It's funny that you mentioned Ophelia. So I thought the actress who played Ophelia in the 1948 version was the worst actress or the worst actor in, in that entire staging, that entire adaptation. And I thought Kate Winslet may have been the best actor in the entire 96 one, or at least one of the best ones. That was a, a pre Titanic Kate Winslet playing Ophelia. And, and she came out swinging, man. Yeah. In that English class, they encouraged us to watch multiple Hamlet adaptations. So at the time I watched 96 and 2000, the modern set one with Ethan Hawke. I might, I might dive in on uh, at least one other Hamlet one, although 
between watching both of those and then watching Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, I might be a little burned out on Hamlet, honestly, because yeah. even Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, like Gargas said, you get the full Hamlet experience or at least an intense dosage of it. Yeah. Well, I'm content watching the Simpsons Hamlet episode because then you get it in, what, 10 minutes instead of four hours. Or you could always go watch The Lion King. Why not? I'll always remember, Brian, the way you described The Lion King is you said it was halfway between Hamlet and Bambi. We could just call it Hamby. And I think of Hamby all the time when I look at uh, Lion King ephemera. Although not the last time I think Lion King will come up this episode. That's right. And it's funny that you mentioned that uh, you were introduced to these this material in high school because that's pretty much the exact same experience I had me exposed with the, for the first time. Like, I know you usually ask me, oh, Gargas, what's your history with this film? How did you decide to bring it on? And, you know, my decision process as to what to bring it on was about the same as always. You know, I looked over the films that I've watched from the website 366 Weird Movies, their choices for the weirdest movies of all time. And I plucked this one out because I really like it. But as with Brian, as I say, I was introduced to it in a uh, high school senior year English literature class. And, you know, our teacher was not exactly encouraging us to watch films outside the class. She in actually integrated the films into the class itself. So that means I've only seen before the 96th Hamlet. And until last week when I watched it to bone myself up on the material, I'd actually not seen the, the uh, production in full. Because as you can maybe imagine with a uh, class that lasted about 50 minutes every day, our teacher decided expedience was probably the best option <laughs> and showed us only really the highlights of the film. So, you know, I'd seen the parts where Brana does all the big speeches. I'd seen a, the uh, part where they stage the play and where Charlton Heston recites the uh, Pyrus and Priam speech, but I'd never actually seen everything strung together before. And, you know, perhaps indicative of the kind of person that I went on to become when she showed us Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I was infinitely more fascinated with that than I was with the entirety of our time with Hamlet. <laughs> it definitely scratches at the brain a certain way. There was also an assignment where everybody had to do their own recitation of to be or not to be, which took a couple class periods, especially since, you know, a large portion of the class, despite this being an advanced placement class, tackled the material by like bringing it up with them in their hand at the front of the class and reciting it like to be or not to be. That <laughs> is the question. <laughs> but I do remember that across the uh, two periods that the teacher was overseeing, I got the uh, second highest grade on it. Nice. And only because she was grading it in the most expedient manner she could, i.e., how many words did you get right? And I kind of stumbled on one. Rats. But, you know, I was also the only person who uh, actually went up there with a costume and tried to actually perform it rather than just doing it from rote memory. I think I may have also been reprimanded because someone lent me a prop knife and for dramatic effect, I dropped it and may have accidentally dinged it. Oh, man. Yeah, that's my background with it. Cool. Well, let's do it uh, super quick 
Crash Course 101 on Hamlet. So it follows a character known as Hamlet. Actually, there's two Hamlets because Hamlet's dad, who recently died and appears as a ghost, is named Hamlet. And, man, having just watched the Eternity version, the four-hour version, I got to figure out how do you, like, zoom out and get just the the important stuff. But basically, he, he returns home from England where he sees that his dad has died, his uncle has very promptly married his mom and taken over the throne, and Hamlet sees as a vision his dad's ghost who says, yo, your uncle killed me. It was fratricide. And then Hamlet comes up with the scheme to basically prepare to kill his uncle, but also deflect attention. And his plan is he's going to act like he's crazy. I don't quite know exactly what his initial thought is and why this will throw him off the scent. I'm going to say now, as many versions of Hamlet as I've watched, I don't like Hamlet. I want him to shit or get off the pot. <laughs> it's like, you gotta you gotta do something, Hamlet. You gotta stop wandering into corners and talking to yourself. You gotta do the thing. <laughs> the thing one has to remember with Hamlet is that he is putting on an act to make everyone think he's crazy and make them not suspect that he's trying to figure out if his uncle really did kill his father or not. But... Also, whenever he is in private, he's talking more insanity to himself than he is when he's talking to everyone else. So it may be that Hamlet is acting crazy. It may be that Hamlet is actually crazy. It may be that Hamlet is actually crazy and also acting crazy. And it may be that Hamlet is perfectly sane and is just the most indecisive fucker to ever live. Well said. And I think, yeah, so the, the big kind of themes of Hamlet are basically the way that we live out our lives as a performance and how that relates to our true self. And then also just death and how that's like a, a difficult thing to process and like what's the meaning of that in this chaotic world. And I mean, basically all of the key moments of the play are either a reckoning with death or a reckoning with performance in some way. So as he's trying to be crazy, the way that he figures out that his uncle actually did do the murder is a troop of actors come to perform, and they are key figures in tonight's selection, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead because they arrive at the same time as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are schoolmates of Hamlet's, and they put on a play that reenacts the murder as the ghost described it to Hamlet. And this makes the uncle very upset, which is confirmation to Hamlet that he actually did do the murder. Yeah. If I can say real quick, with regards to the Branagh version, which I believe we've all watched, when they're performing the murder of Gonzago, you know, this is the only version of Hamlet I've ever seen. I've never seen it on stage. I've never watched any other adaptation. But I have read the play, and I am usually pretty good at extrapolating, like, how a scene might be performed elsewise from the script. And, you know, when one imagines the way that that scene would play out where he's trying to catch the conscience of the king, you could think of him as, you know, like sitting next to Claudius and narrating his lines out or skulking off in the corner and murmuring them to himself. You know, you can stage him all around the place and have his thoughts be private or insidious or, or goading Claudius a little bit more. I think... 
Kenneth Branagh is the only person in the world who has thought that the ideal way to stage that scene is to have Hamlet rush down to the stage and start bellowing his lines up at Claudius like, he poisons him in the ear. Seems familiar, doesn't it? I think Kenneth Branagh is the only person who would look at that and think, yeah, I think this is the right move. He definitely takes Hamlet to be like a erratic, shouty type of guy, which I guess fits with acting crazy, you know? Oh, true. It's just you watch his other movies and it's like, oh, wait, no, this is just what Kenneth Branagh is like. <laughs> That's just his yeah, style. I, I don't know. The whole play within a play thing, I guess it's it's part and parcel. It's like pretty crucial to the structure and the themes, but it's a lot of work for something you already know because your dad came to you as a ghost in the first five minutes of this four-hour thing and he said your uncle killed me i need you to get some vengeance and then hamlet's like i don't know dad i i gotta be sure i gotta pay these actors i gotta like we gotta go through six months of rehearsal and then we gotta have a big crowd of onlookers uh, and then maybe i'll catch the king's conscience which this is a guy who pours poison in his brother's ear and sleeps with his wife while the body's warm I'm not betting that he's got much of a conscience. Just stab him. Oh. Well, Brian, you have to remember one, it's not the first five minutes. If you go by uh, Kenneth Branagh, as it happens about 50 minutes into this four-hour production that the, that the ghost tells Hamlet. <laughs> I guess that he says that specifically, but the ghost is in the mix pretty early. The play is at like the two-hour mark. And in some ways, that's like the inciting incident. And so we were like halfway into our four-hour movie when the inciting incident happened. Brian, I thought of you a lot. A lot of fireworks factory stuff here. The one where he like he pulls the knife out and gets it like an inch away from the dad's head. And he's like, nah, I'm not going to kill him just yet. And pulls the knife away. I was like, Brian's fuming right now. That's all I know. And then spoilers, they, it, they suffer for waiting. In the end, it, it doesn't turn out well for Hamlet. He had his window and he, he he miffed it. Well, that was the other thing I was going to say is that like a major part of all of Hamlet's speeches in the immediate aftermath of meeting the ghost of his father is, well, I've already had these suspicions. I was thinking in advance that my uncle killed my father and now my, the ghost of him has shown up and told me to my face that he did it and to kill him. Was that actually a ghost or am I going crazy? I need a way to figure this out. Hence the play. And the way that I always prefer to read it is that he certainly does catch the conscience of the king, but all that time spent leading up to the, uh, the murder of Gonzago play, it's not just spent establishing Hamlet, it's also spent establishing Claudius and Gertrude and Polonius and all the other characters around the court. And there's a major thing of like, Hamlet's not the only one who's projecting a character. You know, this is, you know, when's Hamlet set like early 1100s? It's, it's pre-medieval politicking going on. Everybody has to be pushing out the uh, projection of like what they're expected from their role, what they think that they should be doing in their role, what they think is best to protect them. So they're all very crafty people who are constantly disguising everything they say in art and artifice. So when Claudius suddenly rises in shock at seeing uh, the reproduction of the way he murdered his brother, it could very well be like 
that he could interpret this as, oh shit, Hamlet knows I did it and he's going to kill me. But since Claudius has been putting on his own performance and keeping an eye on Hamlet and trying to figure out what it means, it's very possible to say that Claudius could be thinking before you get to the scene where he outright admits it to himself that he did it, oh shit, Hamlet thinks I killed my brother when I didn't, and that's why he's acting so strange and he's going to kill me. And then when you have Claudius sitting alone in the chapel, praying to God and confessing that he had done it, Hamlet comes in and as you say, he thinks he's going to, but then he's like, wait, no, he's at prayer. If I kill him now, his soul goes to heaven. Am I really revenging my father if I kill the man who killed him and he goes to heaven while my father goes to hell? I should wait. Well, then, like, slap him or something first. Wake him up. <laughs> yeah, but, like, Claudius finishes the scene by speaking to God and saying, I can't ask forgiveness, I can't repent for this because I still have all the trappings. So I prefer to think of it as Hamlet has the tiniest sliver of maybe confirmation that Claudius killed his father. And even that's not enough because Hamlet is defined by the fact that at every single opportunity, he is going to doubt himself and question his actions and decide to draw back and only ever really gird himself and get all resolute that, that he is going to be bloody and vengeful when he has absolutely zero opportunity to do it. He's really bad at killing his uncle. It's like, just kill kill the uncle, kill your uncle. The ideal way to stage Claudius's prayer scene is that Hamlet comes in just too late to hear Claudius's confession to himself and spends the entire play thinking that he has to kill his uncle because his uncle got up at realizing that Hamlet thinks he did the deed. No actual confirmation, I don't think. Hamlet does not and probably should not have any direct, reliable source of knowing Claudius killed his father. He's just going around thinking, well, circumstantial evidence is good enough for me. That's how I prefer to read it. It's an entire play about someone who is determined to do something from Act 1, Page 1, and doesn't get around to doing it until he has an impulse four hours later. Is there really such a thing as ear poison? Does that work? I need a doctor's <laughs> analysis. This would be a good gauntlet experiment, Brian, if your show was still running. <laughs> Test it out. Well, you know, Hamlet delays killing Claudius because he's the member of a religion that won't come to Denmark until centuries after his death. So I think this is maybe an example of Shakespeare being very, very good at history and geography and science. And It's like those memes of the person who falls asleep first at the sleepover. Yeah, they get the ear poison. <laughs> Real cutthroat sleepover. I'm not sending my kid there. <laughs> but yeah, you were saying after Hamlet decides not to kill Claudius. Right. So so now Hamlet's like, all right, well, I was going to kill him, but now I'm super going to kill him. And so he, he kind of goes even more off the deep end. And the entire court is like, man, Hamlet's really gone crazy. Better send him to England with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And so they send him on a boat. Kills Ophelia's father beforehand by accident. Oh yeah, that's an important point because that's another turning point is he basically 
goes to his mom and is like, what are you doing, mom? Why did you get together with my uncle? That's messed up. And then hears something move in the curtains. And of course, he suspects it's his uncle, which didn't he come straight from the chapel? So like the idea here, I think, is like this is why there's so frequently like an Oedipus projection from Hamlet to his mom, because as soon as he hears his uncle in his mom's bedroom, he gets real stabby and angry and he stabs right into the curtain. And except it's not the uncle, it's the advisor and the advisor Polonius. And this is important because Polonius is the father of Ophelia, who is the person implied to be in a romance with Hamlet. Although the exact depths of the romance varies significantly between different adaptations. 1948 one, it's left as like a suggestion. And in the 1996 one, we see flashbacks to them actually hooking up in Ophelia's bedroom. Well, you know, 90s Kenneth Branagh never misses a chance to film himself having fake sex. I think there are a lot of directors who cast themselves who do similar things. Uh, you should see what he does with his Frankenstein. I do want to catch up with that at some point. Yeah, that 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 was another thing that frustrated me reading the book is like the he he's not interested enough in Ophelia. He's just like I'm gonna do my crazy thing. He's got this good thing lined up with the the princess or whatever. It's just like just do your your royal duties, Hamlet. Don't be such a weirdo all the time. But if he weren't such a weirdo, would we be able to cast such a wide array of twinks as him? <laughs> yeah, it, that, that reminds me. Another thing that we watched at the time back in senior year of high school, in the early days of YouTube, there was this this viral video of um, the sassy gay friend was the title of this series of like synopses of things of what the sassy gay friend would say to the like the the female protagonist of a, of a work. And he was like, he stabbed your dad through a curtain, Ophelia. What, what, what are you doing? That was the, <laughs> that was the line. Oh, I thought you were going to say that the sassy gay friend for Hamlet was just Hamlet himself. It, that would be in play. Yeah. No, he was, he was uh, Ophelia's confidant. One thing that's really bugged me about Hamlet is like, when I hear the words and see the story, this is something that a 16-year-old would do. The story makes more sense if Hamlet is 16 because 16-year-olds are idiots and Hamlet's an idiot. What makes less sense is that Kenneth Branagh, who looks 35 and was in fact 35 when it was filmed, Olivier, who I think was 40, and then wasn't like the... Who did the start in the Zeffirelli one? It might have been like, God, Mel Gibson or someone weird, something weird like that. Someone who was in their 40s or something. So I think it was Mel Gibson. Let me see. That's the 1991. I think so. Yeah. To be fair, the older you make the Hamlet, the older you can make the parents. And this whole film traffics in the fact that old people having sex is gross. Well, OK, you say that. But the 1948 Hamlet, the actress who plays Hamlet's mother is 11 years younger than Olivier was. Whoa. That the the forty eight one really leans into the dude wants to bang his own mom innuendos. Well, the forty eight one's the one that really popularized the Freudian Oedipal interpretation of Hamlet. I think. Apparently, some big book came out like that year or the year before, which was a big influence on Olivier. Or well, never really on a boat in the play. Hamlet's best friend finds out that he was he was like rescued by pirates 
off stage. Yeah, which was always kind of weird for me. It's like it, it happens like a scene later. Like, well, Hamlet's back. You know, he went away, but he got rescued by pirates. But he's back. It's like, oh, well, hey, Hamlet, what's up, buddy? Engineered the deaths of his friends along the way. It is crazy that, like, the most active he is, is off screen. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less from the guy who spends an entire scene deciding whether it's better to be alive or dead. That's true. And as he gets back, he learns that Ophelia killed herself. Maybe. Is there a maybe to that? I might have missed some ambiguity on that. I know it is a long-standing debate on how Ophelia's death should be staged, if she consciously threw herself into the river, or if she um, was just consumed by madness and didn't know that she's drowning. Gotcha. You know, as with a lot of things Shakespearean, there's a lot you can interpret into the text, and then a lot you can do with how you stage it. Especially depending on what you decide to keep in, because God Hamlet is a long play. That's right, yeah. So apparently the Eternity version, if you do the whole thing, typically goes about four and a half hours. But Branna likes shouting really, really fast. Little tidbit, uh, Branna's version isn't like technically what you get if you were to stage like a modern unedited cut of uh, Hamlet. What he did was he did everything. Like, every single line from both of the quattros and the first folio, even if they're somewhat contradictory, he kept every single known line of Hamlet, regardless of whether they were all native to one another or not. Oh, interesting. So things that weren't necessarily in the same staging together. Yeah, because the stuff that's most reliable as, oh, this was probably what Shakespeare wrote and what Shakespeare staged, there are several versions of that from the early 1600s that vary from one another slightly for pretty much all of his plays. Gotcha. So now Hamlet's back in town, and he's upset because Ophelia's dead, but even more importantly, Ophelia's brother, who's also the son of the guy that Hamlet killed, Laertes... He's really mad too now, and he conspires with the king, Hamlet's uncle, a rather convoluted way to kill Hamlet. So now, like, the whole convoluted thing is circling back, I would say. And their plan is they're going to challenge Hamlet to a duel, but like a fencing duel, like not a kill-each-other duel, I don't think, except that uh, Laertes is going to put poison on his blade, so it actually will kill Hamlet. But also, the king is going to put poison in Hamlet's drink. So one of the two is going to kill Hamlet. But first, Hamlet has to spend uh, 10 minutes making fun of Robin Williams' drip. <laughs> That's right. I did not know Robin Williams was going to be in the 96 version. And then, and then, boom, there he is. He's the guard. And something that you didn't say that's important to all the stories that we'll be talking about tonight is when Hamlet was on the boat, that was a plot to kill him as well. Right. And that one failed, yeah. Because he specifically engineered it to backfire on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Exactly. Who had, like, one scene prior to this. Yeah. They were not the ones who came up with the plan to kill him. Right, it was Claudius. And just because I think people who don't know need to know the specifics, was that Claudius sent Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Hamlet on the boat, and they're his college buddies, take him back to college, uh, well, actually, was that where he was going to school? He's going to England on the boat, but Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are there. The note says, 
and it's in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's possession. Initially, it says, when the boat pulls into port, kill Hamlet. But Hamlet finds it and changes it. Like, you know, Saul Goodman style, uses some whiteout, and writes in, kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, which is, he's doing them dirty. They didn't know what's in the note. <laughs> uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are in the wrong place in time, and I really feel bad for them. Yeah, why is it kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Why isn't it like, buy us all an ice cream or something like that. Like, it didn't need to be kill somebody. I do suppose that, you know, Hamlet has spent most of the play thinking that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are against them. In fact, I think that's, you know, prior to Tom Stoppard's work, that's the biggest argument for keeping them in your production, regardless what you're cutting, is that they their introduction kind of represents the point when Hamlet realizes, oh, everybody is against me because even his most trusted college buddies are spying on him on behalf of his uncle. Mm. So in his mind, I suppose they're part of the conspiracy. They deserve to die too, no matter how small their role is. And again, how indecisive and inactive Hamlet is, it's worth noting that he kills Polonius in a basically a fit of rage without thinking, and then signs... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to die when he's miles and miles away and doesn't have to think about it. So, you know, it's an, it's another piece in the pattern of Hamlet being deadly only when it's the most roundabout and indirect ways. Right. So then now we have the actual duel between Laertes and Hamlet and things go badly for everybody. So first of all, the poison in the drink that was supposed to be for Hamlet's, the mom drinks that. And she dies. Another case of maybe suicide, maybe not. 1948 portrays it as suicide, but I read some reviews that argued that that was somewhat of a radical interpretation, or at least not the normal interpretation, and tends to play in with the Freudian themes, if you're kind of leaning into that. Yeah, I think Brana's is a little more subtle about it. Whether whether Gertrude is genuinely accidentally drinking the poison or if it's like some sort of passive aggressive move against Claudius for what he means to do the Hamlet. I'll show you by dying myself. <laughs> and then Hamlet switches the blade with Laertes. Oh, no, no. First Laertes stabs Hamlet. Then they switch blades. Hamlet stabs Laertes. So now they both got poisoned. They both die. And then before Laertes dies, he reveals the plot to Hamlet. So Hamlet slashes his father with the poison blade. His uncle. You're not my real dad, Claudius. <laughs> or if you go by Brana's, he hurls the sword from across an entire ballroom up, up on the balcony down to Claudius and then crushes him beneath a fucking chandelier. I was like, damn, Hamlet's a badass. And so then basically all of the remaining characters die. Now, one thing that's not in the 48 version, but I gather is like important context for the story is that Denmark, was it Sweden that they're battling with? What's the other country? Oh, it's Poland or something. I don't know. Anyways, another army is marching towards them and arrives just as everybody dies, at least in the 96 version. Yeah. And I mean, the big irony is they're not even really at war with uh, Fort Embrace's nation. 
it, you know, everyone's worried that he's marching through Denmark because he means to cause war. But when uh, Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are off for England, they bump into him and he's like, no, I just need to march through your country to get to the guys I'm really out to battle. It's weird. Brana stages it like he's storming the palace and meaning to take over. But as I understand it, it's more conventional to have it just be foreign brasses passing back through Denmark and means to, like, you know, come by the palace, say, hey, thanks for letting me march through without doing anything to me. He walks in on the scene of the entire Danish royal family lying dead on the ground and Hamlet's like, you, you're king of Denmark now and dies. <laughs> Like you walk into a room, it's like you're the king now. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Hamlet just has to make it worse with his dying breath. He makes everything worse with every action he does, and then right as he's dying, he has to get that one last little twist in. Yeah. So Fortinbras didn't even have to try. He got everything he wanted, just handed to him. He got more than what he wanted. He didn't have his eyes on Denmark at all. He just got it handed to him because the entire royal family effectively suicided itself right as he was coming to visit. Well, he wanted the part that had previously been taken from Norway because, like, the prologue that the ghost dad talks about is he's like, my whole career was fighting you know, the other armies, this was a time when defeating Poland was a big accomplishment. And he's like, I, I beat the Poles and then I beat the Norwegians. And, but then like I, I got killed before I could like make it secure. And now the King of Norway's son has a grudge and he's coming and we got to be ready. And that's like on the periphery. And then suddenly there at the end is young Fortinbras, who it's like Hamlet and Hamlet that you got Fortinbras and Fortinbras. It's like the meme from Community when Donald Glover walks in and everything's on fire and swinging when he when he <laughs> arrives. Except he gets the king kingdom. That's his prize there. So yeah. And then as the very very last thing, the ambassador from England comes in and says, "Oh, well, this sucks. We were coming over to tell them that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and that's Hamlet." That's the thing. Yeah. And. Before we go, if you had to be cast as one character in the play, who would you want to be cast as? I think I'd go with Polonius because I get to have the very, very good dialogue of, oh, I am slain. <laughs> what about you, Brian? Man, I feel like there's... What's the Sasha Baron Cohen movie? The Bruno. There's a discussion where he says, and what Sex in the City character would you be? And he's talking to like a bunch of blue collar, like hillbillies. And one of them says, none of them. Don't want to be none of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the way I feel about Hamlet. If I were in Romeo and Juliet, I would want to be the apothecary, the like potion master guy. Well, see, my pick was the grave digger. Oh, I was going to say Brian could be the grave digger. That way he gets to make fun of Hamlet to his face. Okay. That's yeah. a, that's, that is a good choice. Who did Robin Williams play? I remember he was in the movie, but what's that character's name? Osric. He was the uh, guard who comes to fetch Hamlet for the duel. And he and uh, Horatio spend like 10 minutes making fun of the way he's dressed. You could be an Osric. Not that there's anything wrong with the way you dress, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Dan? You got one saved up? Well, I was going to say the gravedigger. If he's not claimed, I'll be the gravedigger. But I don't know. I feel like Laertes 
he he takes it kind of chill in the in the beginning, and then he just gets to go crazy the last act. He gets all the fun. He gets to stab Hamlet, and like I don't know, get he like almost stages a coup. At least according to the 1996 version, which was not in the 48 version. There are a lot of really good character names in this one. Horatio, Laertes, Polonius, all solid. Hamlet's a lower tier name relative to the other names. Some good names. In Hamlet, fantasy name drift. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, as you mentioned, uh, something being cut from the 48 version, that's a good segue to use because... Something else that was cut from the 48 version was the characters of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern entirely. I didn't say that, but I was just going to watch the 1948 version. And then I got like an hour in. I was like, hold on a second. There are no characters named Rosencrantz or Guildenstern in this. And I Googled it. Were, were they in it? And they weren't. I was like, oh, gosh, darn it. Well, yeah. I'll finish this and then I'll watch the long one. But, you know, for over 350 years after Hamlet's premiere, I believe that was a standard cut made to the play to just chop out Rosencrantz and Guildenstone entirely because, you know, as we've outlined, they are fairly important to the plot. You know, they're the ones who bring the uh, players to Hamlet's attention and kind of indirectly give him the idea to use the players to, to uh, catch Claudius out. There's the whole thing of like them being betrayers to him. They're the ones who take him to England. They'd be like one of the final lines. But pretty much everything that they do for the play, you can either easily chop that out without it really being an issue, or you can hand their parts off to someone else and have it work basically just as good. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a perception that they're not important. They're side characters who are more function than person and all their functions can be passed off to someone else with no harm done i mean horatio is already like the college buddy i mean he, i guess he didn't actually go to college with him but he's already like the the childhood buddy you, you have some duplication going on there yeah but you know then in 1966 along comes an up-and-coming playwright known as tom stoppard who has a few ideas about what goes on off stage in hamlet and his new play and Oh, it completely changes the way people look at Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So I guess, yeah, here we are. So the now we're actually on the the selection of the evening. So you said it came out in 1966? The original play did. And then I know it was well-regarded, quite well-regarded. And then in 1990, it finally got made for film. Yeah, there were plans to do it beforehand with, I think, uh, John Borman at the head. Okay. He wanted Michael Caine and Terrence Stamp as the leads and Lawrence Olivier as the player king. But the money for the film never came together and it just kind of sat around unproduced for a long while. Until about 24 years after its uh, premiere, when Tom Stoppard decided, you know what? I'm the only person who can disrespect my material enough to make the necessary changes to make it work for film. I'll do it myself and directed his own adaptation of it, which is the one we watched for tonight. This had me thinking, how often do writers get to adapt their own stuff? Seems fairly rare, doesn't it? The one recent one that I, I was thinking of was um, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, Stephen Chbosky, who like had studied film in college and then pivoted careers to be a writer, basically had hesitated on selling the rights to his book and finally, he said, all right, you can make a film, 
but I both get to adapt the script and I get to direct it myself, even though I'd never directed a movie before. And he now is a pretty, he's, he's done like five movies. So I guess it worked out as a career, another career pivot for him. So, well, even if they don't necessarily direct their own writing, sometimes the writer of the book will get to write the script like Lewis Sacker with holes. I think it's a lot more common. Yeah. Yeah. We did um, Halloween tree recently and Ray Bradbury was credited with the, with the script. I know that the uh, guy who did Jaws, his name escapes me. He was one of the contributors to the screenplay, although by the time it actually got to shooting, it had been changed a lot from his treatment. Peter Benchley. Interesting. This play, just talking about what it is before we talk about what happens, I use the, the phrase in conversation with Hamlet. I think that's appropriate. It, it follows... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, it follows them from basically before they arrive at the castle and the stuff we see them do on screen and then also stuff we see them do off screen. And it's more than just like a sort of interqual side story, but it's like a whole philosophical absurdist piece about just a lot of different concepts of being a character or a person and how one knows one destiny and stuff. And I think Gargas has a lot of thoughts on what this, this movie has to say, but it's, it's not a straight narrative adaptation reaction to Hamlet. I believe the pithiest way I've ever seen of summarizing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is it's a story about two guys who are trying to work out the story of Hamlet and don't yet realize that Hamlet's not supposed to be about them. Interesting, yeah. Because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern spend the entire story basically trying to do exactly what they're charged with doing in Hamlet, i.e. figure out what's wrong with Hamlet. And because the story of Hamlet has to play out the way it does, they can never work it out, no matter how much they're pushed towards it. Right, because it's like un- unknowable. We Nobody knows what's up with Hamlet. It, it's a, it's a, med- it's a deeply metatextual film and and play that's a good word for it yeah i should note that the play is is engineered very often to take place in the margins of hamlet taking advantage of the actual physical space of the theater to have rosencrantz and guildenstern like off the sides in the wings practically off stage maybe even in the audience for some scenes to emphasize that they're not really in the play they're just sort of outside it and occasionally intersect with it where necessary and also they're kind of on rails and coming to grips with that like they're kind of becoming self-aware and learning that they are characters and not especially important ones yeah like their dialogue is very a sort of modern pattern like you would expect from a play written in 1966 but anytime they have to recite their lines from Shakespeare they recite their lines direct from Shakespeare then the scene ends and they're like did you did you get what was going on I'm, I'm not sure where we are <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm supposed to make of this I want to go home now what had me thinking of was uh, there was a streaming movie that came out last year called Rosalind, who is the woman that 
Romeo was going to marry before he fell in love with Juliet. And it retells the story from her perspective. But it it's not very good, unfortunately. It kind of plays as a tropey romance, and it actually gets worse the more it interacts with the play, I thought, because it's basically her just rolling her eyes at what's happening on screen without really anything, any of the wit and cleverness that's in this play here. Well, even so, it would still owe a major debt to this play because I'm pretty sure that entire idea of doing below decks Shakespeare, looking at what's happening between the lines of the play was popularized by Stoppard's work here. I definitely believe it. It was impactful enough that nowadays, most theatrical productions of Hamlet no longer cut Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It'll actually, they'll actually commonly include little in-jokes to, uh, to the play of the movie. And I understand that it's fairly common for several troops to finish up their production of Hamlet and then immediately flip to a production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead with the same cast. Oh, interesting. So you think it's about time to uh, get into the movie after, what, an hour of discussion? <laughs> so Rosencrantz is played by Gary Oldman and Guildenstern is played by Tim Roth. Maybe. Well, what do you mean maybe? They oh, because they never decide who's who. That's right. That's a good point. I thought that was pretty funny. In fact, I understand that they were originally cast the other way around. Interesting. The Gary Oldman character is one of his things is he's constantly like inadvertently discovering or maybe like inserting in modern inventions and modern designs of things. So like he puts together, assembles his food in what we recognize as a hamburger in the opening scene. And he's constantly like looking at something and being like, hold on a second. And then goes and uses it in some modern way, which is, is pretty funny. What was your take on this Gargas? The thing that has always stood out to me about the way that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are distinguished from one another is that Rosencrantz, as played by Gary Oldman, is the sort who's constantly poking at the world around him, trying to get his fingers into things, trying to come to grips with stuff. And he's coming up with like these discoveries that won't be made for ages and ages on. Like He brushes up against the concepts of gravity and water displacement and steam power you know all these little things and he's even able to make a few little things out of them just while he's scratching at it but he does not have the bigger picture capacity to work out what all of this means i found that really interesting the way that they would have him almost discover things and then like not be able to follow through not be able to demonstrate it at scale and it had me thinking about how often that must have happened throughout history. You know, you see something and, and you, it's interesting, but you don't really like go all the way with it. Yeah, for the, the best example, I think, is he's messing around with, a, with like a set of props in a chest and he's tossing them back in and he notices, hang on, this big thing and this little thing, they fall into the chest at the exact same rate, even though you'd expect the big thing to fall faster than the little thing. But then he tries to demonstrate it to Guildenstern and he grabs the largest ball he can and a feather and is like, you would think this would fall faster than this. Drops him off the balcony and naturally the ball drops like a ball, a big stone, and the feather flutters gently down to the ground. 
and to be absolutely right. <laughs> and that's the end of it. He never brings it up again. That always bugged me about the example. If you ever learned about gravity and acceleration is like a piece of paper or a feather will fall at the same rate as a boulder. They're like, no, it won't because of air resistance. You dinguses. Although an astronaut did it on Apollo 17 and in a vacuum, it works. There you go. <laughs> but opposite him, Tim Roth as Gilden Stern. He's a very high-minded and philosophical character. He's the one who's trying to get at the bigger questions of like, what is causing Hamlet to be mad? Why were we called here? What does all of this mean? But he's very, he's so caught up in those bigger questions that he's a bit short-tempered. He doesn't have any mind for the things that uh, Rosencrantz is scratching at. So he's often the one who either gives him a withering look that cuts cuts it down or interferes by like crumpling up uh, Guildenstern's biplane model made out of paper. He's basically so caught up in the uh, bigger picture that he does not have his feet on the ground sufficiently to actually tackle the problem. And because the pair of them are so constantly at odds or swapping their traits with one another for a scene, I've seen them... Uh, characterized as like a bisected brain with each one having a different hemisphere but it seems to me more like they are really two people who are sometimes convinced they're one and sometimes convinced they're completely separate but just staunchly refuse to use like a different sort of initiative in order to in order to scratch at the issue before them which i think in a way makes them very much like hamlet because Hamlet is characterized and shown to be through his dialogue an incredibly intelligent character. He's just stubborn and only willing to consider his problems from a very particular angle, and that results in much of the tragedy of the play. Yeah, one thing I really liked about this is that it it's not just like a goofy lark on Hamlet, but it like actually kind of deepens Hamlet and has some respect for the ideas of Hamlet and like echoes it and mirrors it. It's like, it's not just a big middle finger to it, but it's taking some of the themes and some of the traits of the story and uh, doing something different with it, but in a way that makes you think about Hamlet in a different way that will make you still appreciate Hamlet, you know? Uh, what was it I said when I reviewed uh, Stoppard's Shakespeare in Love a little while back? It's like a 50-year-old Shakespeare scholar writing the equivalent of a 13-year-old's crack ship pairing for Shakespeare. When it's the person who wrote that also writing this, you know there's going to be a deep respect for Shakespeare, but also enough irreverence to, act, to really do some weird shit with it. And it's not just reverence, right? Because it's also doing... Yeah, goofy stuff with it. Boundary pushing stuff with it. I mean, Hamlet's first proper scene opens with him squatting on the floor, squawking like a chicken. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty funny slice of Hamlet being crazy. Because the way that we see him crazy, at least in the two films that I saw, are like him going ooga booga in people's faces and shouting and just being a weirdo. It's like, don't be a weirdo, dude. But no, like, pretending he's a chicken, I, I, that's like an actual... I, I like that as an example of something a crazy person would do. So do you want to just maybe run through the uh, major points of the movie? Sure. So it opens with 
the two characters on their way to the castle that the that Hamlet takes in. It's called Elsinore Castle. And the very first thing that happens is they find a coin on the ground. And it's the character played by Gary Oldman who takes it. And he starts flipping it, the coin. And every time he flips it, he gets heads. So there's a stretch of, it's got to be like literally two minutes of just watching Gary Oldman flip a coin and say heads, heads, flip, heads. It is it is broken up a little bit. You know, Tim Roth takes the coin. He tries it himself. He gives it back to Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman flips the coin a bit more. Tim Roth offers him one of his own coins from out his purse. They try it. It's still coming up heads. Right. But the the result, no matter how they change it, is inevitable. They even wind up dropping it off the cliff they're riding along. It bounces down for like 15 seconds and comes up heads. That leads them to a conversation about like fate and the probability of things happening and just lots of like that kind of conversation in there. Yeah. And uh, exactly how they got here, because neither of them... They never exactly admit out loud that they have no memory of how they got here. But it's clear that the earliest thing they can remember is the very first thing we saw on screen and the necessary implication that someone from Elsinore came to get them. They cannot remember much more than that, and they won't admit to each other that they can't remember much more than that. And then the next thing that happens is they run into this acting troupe these are the tragedians. And I don't know, is that a real word, tragedians? I, it does sound like the kind of word you would use to describe someone whose profession in acting is tragedies. It's a wandering troupe of actors who put on tragedies, and they're so excited to meet these people because now they have an audience. And so they start like preparing a show which is our first big metatextual thing, because you can't have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as characters without an audience to watch a production of Hamlet. You can't really have characters at all without an audience to watch the production. Otherwise, what is it? Just a rehearsal. And the tragedians are fairly sinister characters from the moment we meet them, because they are showing off all the different kinds of plays and stories that they can put on for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And there's something about them that like makes them, especially this guy who leads them, who I think just gets called the player, almost godlike figures because they're in a play. And so the people who put on the play they're Brian, it had me thinking of like Tom Bombadil, like they're kind of separate from the fabric of the universe, but they can kind of control it too. Yeah. The, players in this movie kept bringing me back it's like i would get sucked out of it by you know a 60s postmodern playwright kind of being high on his own supply but i would fall in love with all the like gimmicks that these actors are doing you know like when they're pretending to be a boat or they're you know and then somebody is like pretending to be waves it would win me over again yeah, Richard Dreyfus definitely steals every scene he's in. He's got he's putting on a very distinctive and memorable voice as the player king. And so then they like rapidly appear at the castle. It's like they teleported there because now it is their time to be in the play. 
specifically when like they're left alone on stage there's a shot of them just standing like center stage on the player's wagon and then all of a sudden they're at the castle which has some implication that they are suddenly there because it is now time for them to be in hamlet in fact i'd, I'd even go so far as to argue that the scenes of them riding is only important in so far as establishing the story of rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead they don't actually need to ride to the castle. We just need to see them being uncertain about how things are and noticing that probability is weird before we actually dump them into the castle to play out that part. I also get the impression that this has happened a bunch of times. It, like every time somebody stages Hamlet, they have to live through this again. Oh, yeah, I love that about this. Are there, like, implications that they've done this before? I can't remember that. Well, they're like, where does your memory start? And then, I mean, the title is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. So, like, they are dead. I mean, that's a line from the play. But they're wondering where they are or who they are or how they are. And the answer is there in the title. They are dead. So it's like, you know... It's it's not a stretch to say they're like Bruce Willis wandering through the sixth sense and trying to like make sense of their situation. Oh, they're like in purgatory. It's also just my interpretation of the coin scene, or at least one interpretation, that it always comes up heads because the story always goes the same. Right. You can change the circumstance of how the coin is flipped, but it is still going to land the same way. They are still going to die in the end. So it's like Hamlet time loop. Dan. Oh, interesting. I would definitely watch this as a time loop. The time loop is every time someone decides to perform Hamlet. You know what it's like is, what's the name of that Woody Allen movie? Uh, Purple, Purple Rose of Cairo, I think it's called, which is really good. And the premise of that, Brian and Gargas, if you haven't seen it, is that it's like old studio era Hollywood, and there's this one woman who has a crappy life and the way she escapes is she always goes to the movies and she'll pick a movie and she'll watch the movie over and over again and eventually the movie starts talking to her and it like there's this dual reality of the people in the movie and the real world and it kind of plays around with that but the idea is that the people in the movie are like doing the movie over and over again and even in teen beach movie brian that that idea comes up. I think it maybe it's Teen Beach 2. That's what I was going to say is, oh, that's the one that's Teen Beach movie. I love I love the connections we make on this show. <laughs> you you, you got to link you got to link uh, Shakespeare up to the Disney Channel original movies. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the only moral thing to do. And so now that they're at the castle, they're mostly wandering around trying to figure out what's going on by like the snippets of plot that they witness. Yeah. I think it's important to note that like, you know, Claudius and Gertrude enter for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's first actual scene in the play. They act it out as they should, you know, Claudius and Gertrude laying out what's going on in a little bit. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern reading off their lines and promising to spy on Hamlet. And it's kind of here where them mixing each other up with the other originates because of a line from Shakespeare. The way I understand it, I believe Shakespeare intended Claudius and Gertrude going, uh, thanks Rosencrantz and gentle Guildenstern. Thanks Guildenstern and gentle Rosencrantz. 
I believe the consensus is that Shakespeare mainly intended that as, you know, Claudius thanking them one way and then Gertrude thanking him in a slightly different way. But over the years, it's come to be commonly played as Claudius mixes up their names and Gertrude subtly corrects him by addressing them properly. But then after they leave and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are left on their own, they're all of a sudden confused as to which of them is which and have a protracted discussion on how exactly they're supposed to remember that, if it should be like, you know, instinctive knowledge that's inborn into them or like high level knowledge that they can call on after they think about it for a moment and which is better to know who I really am. Well, it's also like a Balkan skull situation because you have... Two people that they got to be together. That's just part of their nature. Is that they're, they're packaged as a duo. And they don't really have distinct personality characteristics, except that, you know, in the case of Balkan Skull, one of them's the fat one and one of them's the skinny one. In the case of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, one of them is Gary Oldman and one of them is Tim Roth. And that's basically the extent of the distinction of their personality. Yeah. They have personality tendencies, and the trouble is, is that in certain scenes across the story, they kind of swap them around. The Balkan Skull situation is a possible title for this episode, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they have that discussion, and then they come across the uh, court, which is where we get the question scene. So tell us about the question scene. So they decide that to uh, pass the time and try and figure out what they're going to do. They're going to play a game of questions. And you play questions, you know, someone asks you a question, you have to lob back an answer. There can be no repetition, rephrasing, rhetoric, or hesitation in a game of questions. I'm pretty sure this is a skit on whose line is it anyways, too. <laughs> I believe it is, yes. <laughs> Gary Oldman gets a leg up on Tim Roth because Roth keeps making these little slips of the tongue, which makes him more and more frustrated and gives a old man a match of his own. And it basically winds up flipping the script entirely, giving the uh, point and game over to Rosencrantz with a big, who do you think you are? <laughs> Rhetoric, game and match. match. <laughs> It is cool that they stage it on a tennis court. I thought that was compelling. Right. So the volley back and forth. I just think it's it's an interesting way of showing that questioning what's going on is basically all they can do, but they're confined by these rules that force them to play in a very particular way, and all it really does is lead them around in circles to no productive effect. It's basically a microcosm of their situation. Right. All they can do is ask questions and frustrate each other and get nowhere. <laughs> they do eventually come to a point where they're um, able to kind of try something where Tim Roth hits on the idea of, I'll pretend to be Hamlet and you, Gary Oldman, try to ask me what's wrong with me. Which takes a while because identities are already confused. And surprisingly enough, they managed to diagnose exactly what's wrong with Hamlet. I thought that was pretty funny. They have this big funny conversation where they're laying out the whole thing about your father's dead, your uncle comes along, he is suddenly crowned king when you were of age and you're supposed to get the crown, but now he's king and he's in your bed with your mother, which is not only unnatural, it's also disgusting as hell. What is going on with you? Why are you mad? 
I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> Hamlet, by the way, is played by, I think you pronounce it Ian, I-A-I-N, Glenn, who is also in Game of Thrones. He plays the guy who hangs around with Daenerys, the creepy old guy. I forget his name. Is that Sir Jaren? Jorah. Jorah, yeah. Jorah Mor- Mormont, I think. But I kind of liked him. He at least seemed more like a hot-headed teenager than the other Hamlets I saw. And he just seems like he's a good actor, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. One thing that I note with this is that he gets to kind of deliver bits and pieces of Hamlet's big soliloquies, but very frequently we don't actually hear him doing it. He's standing off to the side by himself, mouthing what's obviously the start of the soliloquies, and we just don't get to hear it at all. So it's very often just, you know, Shakespeare, the great wordsmith of the English language, done up in silence. After they bump into Hamlet and have to recite their lines from the play again. And it falls apart because they have to read their lines like they're written in Hamlet. And as they're written in Hamlet, Hamlet is basically verbally dancing all around them, making them look like fools. Yeah, it's like, it's not only are they minor characters, but they're meant, they end up looking pretty stupid too. Which is kind of funny because they're both very insightful in their own ways. Oh, they're, they're certainly insightful about their own situation. But right now, it's not their situation, it's Hamlet's situation. And Hamlet gets to score as many goals as he likes on them. So I think after this is when they actually encounter the tragedians. Yeah, I mean, they first come to them as Hamlet does when they are staging their, um, their little performance that gives Hamlet the idea to use the play to catch Claudius's conscience. I also find it interesting that they, like, that that scene is supposed to be like before the royal court, but the movie specifically stages it in like the uh, servants' galley. Hmm. The play is in the servants' galley. Not the play. Like you remember how um Brana staged it? It's in the uh, main hall where the king and queen's throne is when Charlton Heston does that very evocative, memorized speech from um the Trojan War. Right. Mm-hmm. But but in this take, it's got Hamlet hanging out with Polonius down in the servants' quarters, so everything's a bit, you know, more warmly lit. There's a whole lot of uh, detritus and animals and dirt all around. It's much more like down-to-earth sort of thing, which I think is fitting with the players, despite them being um sort of ethereal beings to uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. In the reality that we, the audience, share, they're probably the most grounded and directly connected to us of the uh, characters. They're perhaps the only real physical people in the movie, depending on your point of view. And this scene kicks off a what felt to me pretty extended kind of middle act where, I don't know, it felt like the pace kind of slowed down and they were just kind of hanging around waiting for stuff to happen. Considering how long Rosencrantz and Guildenstern go between scenes in Hamlet. Right. It kind of fits the purpose of what they're trying to do. But I kept being like, all right, so what is going to happen next? And they, we, we do know what is going to happen. I was like, well, I, I, I'm excited to see it. But what are, what are a couple of the things we see in this stretch here? Oh, uh, well, what we see is basically the entirety of Hamlet several times over. <laughs> well, you know, first off, you have the bathhouse scene. 
with you know the players lurking around behind a hung sheet, becoming as you know shadows or sinister figures emerging out of and disappearing back into the fog. Well. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are still trying to figure out where they are. You know, Rosencrantz almost replicates Archimedes' uh, water density experiment. Was it like, who am I thinking of? Is it Archimedes? Yeah, but to be fair, that one had already happened by the Middle Ages. So that one he wasn't coming up with. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, he still can't figure it out because he's too creeped out by the players all around him. Mm-hmm. But you have that uh, big speech with the uh, player king and them where he, you know, tries to explain to them a few of the things that are going on. And it's got one of my favorite exchanges in the movie where he's like, the old man thinks he's in love with his daughter. Good God, we're out of our depths here. (laughs) Where they sort of start to realize that he's a bit more than he appears to be. Is it, is it there or somewhere else where it's it's like, we're actors, we're the opposite of people? It's always stood out to me. I remember a few of the lines uh, were still in my head from senior year. There's another one where early on, they're talking about how your beard continues to grow after you die. And the other character responds, what? And the first character says beard period and that as a line of dialogue in a play i like that just beard period just beard that's pretty good but another one is they're talking about like to be or not to be and one of them this is when they're on the boat at the end of the movie and one of them says i've thought about not being and then the other one says, you can't not be on a boat. He says, I've often not been on a boat. It's like, no, what you've been is not on boats. When they're talking about death as the ultimate negative. Complete non-being. I'm on a boat and it's going fast. And... <laughs> but then you come to uh, the, the dumb show. I think the dumb show is what they refer to one of the later dumb shows, but they're all like, silent productions of the uh, later parts of Hamlet. Like, basically, the player king and his troop play out the entirety of Hamlet from the point where Hamlet stabs Polonius to the point where everybody's dead. And it's basically just a massive bit of foreshadowing for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, where, you know, their actors come up on the stage at the very end and are hung... And even though they're dressed very similarly and look a bit similar in the face, even though the player king has been dropping lines about, I'd advise you both to concentrate not on losing your heads. They can't figure out that it's supposed to be them. It's a very good reproduction too. It's like a, it's something that has, that I wanted to talk about where I know that early on the player king has a little bit of dialogue about how they can give you the love and the blood without the rhetoric. They can give you the rhetoric and the blood without the love. They can give you all three, consecutive or concurrent, but they cannot give you the love and the rhetoric without the blood because the blood is compulsory. Which, considering that they wind up staging Shakespeare with the words completely stripped away and the focus entirely on the violence of the play, you know, they, they, they mainly depict how 
Polonius dies, how Ophelia dies, how Gertrude dies, Laertes, Claudius, Hamlet, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern. You know, they boil Shakespeare down to the violence in it, to the stuff that's most immediately appealing as action and bloodletting and stuff you can do up as special effects. And I'm wondering what you think about that sort of tendency in the film to boil away all the stuff that conventionally makes Shakespeare a great amongst the scholars to just get at the stuff that's probably the most appealing for like, you know, the groundlings, or even if we're being perfectly honest, his actual uh, patrician audiences of his day. You know, does Shakespeare really just boil down to the stuff that's exciting and appealing and bloody? Well, I was thinking as I was watching Hamlet, I was thinking about A Christmas Carol because A Christmas Carol has stuff that's like appealing on that level, like ghosts and first loves and lost tragic romances and the threat of dying from diseases. But it's also got like a lot of deeper stuff about understanding your place in the world and like relationship between different types of people and classes and like what measures your soul when you die and deeper stuff too. And I think what makes Shakespeare so uh, appealing is that he does both of those things too. Big melodramatic stories with lots of deaths and poisons and ghosts and treachery, but also like really thoughtful content. Although I do want to, I realized I was going to bring it up earlier and I forgot to. Brian, one thing you said to me one time that's stuck in my brain, it's never gone away, is you told me one time that you thought the only reason people still did Shakespeare is because he's public domain and he's free. So can you expand upon this theory? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's why it's endlessly getting remade. It's why every school does it. It's why every teacher can pass out two dozen copies because they're cheap to print because you don't have to pay anybody any royalties. You're always going to have that public domain drawer to draw from it's why there's always robin hood movies and moses movies and and now finally we're getting some new things entering uh great gatsby now anybody could do a great gatsby and also i mean it was 500 years ago so he was able to get to a lot of plots that given enough time anybody could have hit those plots you know and in fact he also had a good like PR department. He had like was making early use of like the printing press. So in some cases, people did have those stories already. But he was the one who was able to get them out there and get his name stamped on them. Yeah, I think there's a lot of scholarly debate as to exactly how much of Shakespeare's works were entirely him and how much was him reinventing plays that were popular 10 years beforehand and just putting his own spin on them. But I mean, he's got good stuff. He's not a nobody. He's a he's a name. That's what you said, right, Dan? So, yeah, he's he's a real dude. Brian's hot take: Shakespeare, he's pretty okay, I guess. He's all right. <laughs> Whoa! I almost fell over. So good joke. <laughs> My take on the whole thing with the players boiling Shakespeare down to the to the blood without the rhetoric is sort of that, like, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and to an extent, the players are, you know, they're doomed by what Shakespeare wrote. You know, even if you decide as the uh, troupe that's putting on the production of Hamlet that tonight for our final production, our very final statement on it, 
Rosencrantz and Guildenstern aren't going to die. We're going to take out that line. In fact, we're going to have them come back and see what happened from England. You can't actually save them because inevitably someone else is going to come along and do Hamlin again, and they're probably going to say Rosencrantz and Guildenstern die. So they're all caught in what Shakespeare wrote. It's all sort it's all to an extent like, you know, Shakespeare versus his own characters. They're trying to figure out what's going on, but he's more powerful than them, them because he's the author, so he gets final say. But at the same time, the players do necessarily have more freedoms than Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, because once the murder of Gonzaga is over, they're out to play entirely. So after that point, they can do pretty much whatever they want. If they want to do a whole bunch of like self-referential, incestuous versions of Shakespeare, they're perfectly free to it. So I kind of take them boiling it down to it as sort of being, to an extent, an incarnation of that characters versus author dynamic. But because they're also the actors, it kind of feels to me a little bit of, you know, how actors must actually feel doing Shakespeare or any kind of play. Because hmm. all the rhetoric, that's the stuff that you really got to work at. You got to make sure you memorize it right. You got to make sure you get it out properly. You got to stick to the text. But then you get to the violent stuff and you can just sort of have fun with it. You know, it's still physical work, but you have more freedom on exactly how Hamlet and Laertes have their sword duel and nick each other and kill Claudius and all that sort of stuff. I don't know if that's entirely what Stoppard intended, but given how heavily postmodernist this play is, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't mind if I came up with an interpretation that he never intended. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely thinking about the relationship of all of these pieces. Plus, you know, what is Shakespeare but 400 years of interpretations that the author never intended? All right, we should jump ahead now to when... Is there any other significant things before they get on the boat? There is the um, the the life in the box speech. Okay, so what's the life in the box speech? So it's between the two uh, dumb shows, and it's directly contrasted against to be or not to be. Like you said, you weren't sure whether we get it. We do kinda. It has Hamlet kneeling down, mouthing it, but then it's contrasted against you know Gary Oldman lying down on top of a tomb and wondering about well. Do you ever really think about actually being dead in a box and just sort of talking his way through why exactly being dead should bother someone? Because, you know, you think about it, if you're dead in a box, it's not you being alive in a box. You're dead. You won't be able to think about it. Of course, you know, being alive in a box is in any sort of enviable position. And in fact, if one has to be stuffed in a box and buried six feet underground, it'd be better to be alive than dead, because most of the time it's preferable to be alive rather than dead. Because, you know, even then, if you're dead, but alive in a box, you can at least lie there thinking, well, at least I'm not dead. <laughs> Maybe someone will come along and get me. And it's just my absolute favorite part of the film where he goes through this entire thing. At multiple points, he makes big pauses where Tim Roth, you know, is staring at him and moves to speak. And then uh, Oldman continues his lines. And at the very end, when it's evident that he's actually done and we can just let silence hang for a minute and contemplate what he said. 
I think I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and I just love that it is like the heaviest bit of philosophizing in the film tossed off with a simple one-liner <laughs> in, in complete deadpan. I think around this time we got the line that was my favorite in the film, which is he like sits up on the crypt and he says, for all the points on the compass, there's only one direction. Everybody dies and it sums up this thing that they've been doing where they're kind of poking at the boundaries and the bonds of what's possible in their world and just continually coming to the conclusion that they're on rails and can't change their fate and then saying, get it? That's everybody. That's everyone, all of us, because we only have one life to live and it's got a expiration date. And... We uh, wind up with what I am going to impulsively call the uh, Timon and Pumbaa moment of the movie. So how so? Where it turns out that it's not actually uh, Hamlet's actions that result in all the death in the uh, back half of Hamlet. It's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's. <laughs> they wind up sneaking up on Polonius when he's spying on Hamlet accosting Gertrude. And the entire reason that Polonius, you know, Yelps in surprise isn't because of Hamlet costing Gertrude. It's because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern snuck up on him. Mm -hmm. So Hamlet stabs Polonius through the curtain. That gets Hamlet exiled. It drives Ophelia to madness and causes her to, let's just say, die. I don't want to say kill herself or drown herself or whatever, just because of the because of the uh, ambiguity. But Ophelia dies because Polonius dies. That brings Laertes back to her funeral. Hamlet comes back. He accosts Laertes. They decide to have their big duel. And bing, bang, boom, everyone's dead. But the first domino in that chain isn't Hamlet assuming that it's Laertes behind the curtain. It's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern accidentally going boo to uh, Polonius. Right. I thought that that was pretty funny. That ca causes the chain reaction. I call it the Timon and Pumbaa moment because, you know, Lion King one and a half has all those jokes about how it's really Timon and Pumbaa causing all the events of the Lion King, which was itself a send up to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. But this is the big moment where it turns out, oh, no, all the deaths in Hamlet's are their fault. <laughs> so I did say we would bring up Lion King again. And yeah, so Lion King one is kind of a riff on Hamlet. Lion King 2 is a riff on Romeo and Juliet. And then Lion King 1 and a half is a riff on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Who'd have thunk? Who would expect that that would happen? But it did. I want more of this. Like, I want the Taming of the Shrew Lion King entry. The Merchant of Venice. Can you imagine the hot water Disney would get in if they did fucking Taming of the Shrew? Or or Merchant of Venice. I wonder what kind of animal is taking the pound of flesh. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, then we have the hard cut onto the boat. Right. So now they're on the boat. I find it interesting that they seem more free on the boat. Because they're off screen now. They, they're not bound to the truth of the play anymore. Well, they're not just off screen. They're basically out of the play. Right. The, the only thing they have left to do is done by another character to walk in at the very end and say that they're dead. 
Until such time as they are actually dead, they are not adherent to Shakespeare at all. I guess, except that we know that Hamlet's going to tell someone that he switched the note, but I guess Hamlet could be lying or something like that. Yeah, that's the other Timon and Pumbaa moment when um, they're trying to figure out like why they're on the boat. They're basically back to square one with all their previous information irrelevant. And of course, they read the note, and Gary Oldman decides to read it aloud, and has it said, On the arrival of this boat to England, on the opening of this letter, I shall have Hamlet's head cut off. And it turns out Hamlet is listening to them. Right, so they inadvertently trigger that as well. I think it's it's entirely fair to say if Gary Oldman had not read that note aloud, then Hamlet would have decided, well, I can maybe wait till I get to England to figure out what to do next, and then gotten his head chopped off, and that would be the end of it. I like Dan's suggestion of the alternate note that Hamlet should have written. Please buy the bearers of this note all ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are... Fed. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And then the pirates attack. Right. So one thing that confused me, the pirates attack, and I like this. This is like the most it's an exciting scene. The boat crashes in and we see like the head of the what do you call like the little mermaid on the front of the boat getting like right up close to the the actors. Yeah, the figurehead smashes in. So were the pirates actually the English? I was a little confused by that because then they read the note to the guy. But how did he get there? Was he one of the pirates or did he just also happen to be there? I believe the pirates are the players. Oh, okay. You know, the pirates aren't actually in Shakespeare. They're there when Horatio reads out the letter saying that Hamlet is coming back and is like, oh, he was uh, rescued by pirates. And that is the extent that the pirates are in Shakespeare. I suppose. We don't see him on screen. Yeah. There's that freedom to act there and the, and the players take on that role basically to ensure that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern play out their final off-screen role. And this leads to a really fun last couple of minutes that I I really enjoyed. So one is that the player, yeah, so he's there. And so he has them read the note aloud, but they don't yet know that the note has been switched. So they're reading it aloud and they get to the end part. And then it pops out that the people who need to be killed are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Actually, he doesn't want to say it at first, but... I can't remember if it's the player that says it or if he just forces them to say it, but it's it's a very funny moment when it leads up to them. What I remember is like, not that note, give him the other note. <laughs> I haven't got another note. And then one of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I forget which one. Tim Roth. Decides, all right, time to take control of the situation. I'm going to kill this player who's making our lives horrible. And he takes a knife and stabs him. But the knife that he grabs is a stage knife because everything that the players are doing is just an elaborate piece of play, piece of drama. And so I thought that was pretty funny. Basically, don't shoot the messenger. They're the ones acting it out, but they're not the ones who wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Either the line or the play of the same title. Who in the universe of the fiction can they stab who would make any difference? It's not like Tom Stoppard's there. <laughs> I mean, you know, he probably is just off camera directing the scene. Oh, that's true. But he's not on camera, so they can't do anything to him. So there's nothing they can do to stop it. 
And they're basically both resigned when all of a sudden they, they're on a gallows with nooses around their necks. Right, because they need to die. Well, considering everything they've been through, can you blame them for being like, all right, no, I give up? <laughs> As the movie ends, we see a montage of all of the deaths at the end of Hamlet, which at this point we know were inadvertently caused by our dynamic duo. And then in bursts the, the guy from England with the message, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And all of a sudden it's, I don't know, it just, it makes that moment seem so funny. When in Hamlet, it's just kind of like a pointless grace note. Now that very pointlessness becomes funny, I thought. Yeah. And then we see the players packing up their wagon and riding off into the distance of the woods underneath the uh, same Pink Floyd song that opened the movie. Going back to the delivery of the line that is the title of the play, what it had me thinking of is in the show The Leftovers, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, one of the main characters is a preacher. And he comes at the dilemma of The Leftovers, which is that 2% of the world is raptured away at a specific moment. And he comes at it from a spiritual angle. And he's a Christian. So he's constantly preaching to people about Jesus but he just, everything bad and dramatic happens to him throughout the series. And then in his, one of his spotlight episodes in the third season, a bunch of the characters are on a boat together. And there's one guy on the boat who's pretending to be Jesus. And so this guy, this character, uh, the main character, sees the guy who's pretending to be Jesus and goes and tells the other people that he's seen Jesus. And they're all like, what are you talking about, dude? You keep talking about Jesus. We don't want to hear it anymore. And then at the very end of the episode, it turns out that the guy who was pretending to be Jesus was actually like he had lions and drugs and all this crazy stuff that was just totally implausible. And at the end, he points and he says, that's the guy that I was telling you about. And it's like a series long punchline about his obsession with Jesus and telling all the other characters about Jesus. And I got the same energy. That's the guy that I was telling you about when the guy barges in and says, Rosencrantz and Gilded start are dead. And it, it made me laugh pretty hard. Nice. But anyways, that's how the movie ends. So, Brian, what are you thinking here as the movie winds down? I was a bit up and down on this one. The production design is really strong throughout like the pirate attack that is suddenly happening where there's ships smashing through other ships and like the pretty ornate burial vault that they were down in and not fog exactly, but like icy breath where you can tell they got the room really cold. And so anytime that I would get like bored because it's a pretty long movie or or kind of pulled out of it because there's long stretches where it's just this dense like witty for wit's sake dialogue and it's all like asking the same questions over and over so strengths and weaknesses but i would always get brought back by the fact they had like really thrown all the necessary ingredients at the production now, Gargus, I know that this is on your letterboxed top four, so I know it's one that you think highly of. So how highly would you rank this among your, your favorites? 
Well, it has been a little while since I updated my Leatherbox top four. You know, I never really intended it for it to be like, you know, these are my actual top four movies of all time. I intended to like cycle through. These are four movies that I think very highly of and are either like formative to me or reflective of something I consider core to myself or just something that I think are really, really good. And then, you know, I updated it once years ago and I've never really gotten around to it again. So why does this fall in that that camp? I think it's the uh, first two I mentioned there, that it's formative to me and that it's something that I think is reflective to a core of me because I really do like metatextual stuff. I like it when you have fiction questioning its own veracity or integrity, just poking at that logic and asking, why is this really happening? Because it's such a fun way of getting at those larger philosophical questions about real life while packaging it up in a manner that lets you go at it a little more roundabout, take the scenic route to asking what's life all about. And I think that even if it is a lot of uh, wit for wit's sake, as Brian says, which, you know, Stoppard was still fairly young when he wrote this. I think he was like late 20s, early 30s at oldest, which in playwright terms is still practically a fresh-faced baby. You can tell that it's a lot of like, man, I am the cleverest person in the world for coming up with all of this. But the difference is, is that he actually really is monstrously clever and witty. So it's... And it's a major pleasure for me every time I watch it. A lot of this stuff is sort of permeated into my casual vocabulary. A lot of it informs the way I tend to think about metafictional or existential stuff. And it's basically the uh, my main point of interest when it comes to Shakespeare. So is that too. It's just something that I find immensely enjoyable to watch, immensely enjoyable to think about, and probably informed the uh, reason why when I was still writing fiction of my own, I kind of tended towards meta stuff more often than not. Gotcha, yeah. At first, I was like, how can you can you really do something that's just like poking fun at Hamlet, like parodying Hamlet and have it actually be clever? But I really do think it is genuinely clever, like the way it's all structured, the way that it rearranges Hamlet, but also like kind of pokes at the very nature of what does it mean to be a character in a story in a a way that's kind of jokey, but also like kind of thoughtful, too. It's taking a, a step up above Hamlet and using that fictional distance to ask basically the same questions that Shakespeare posed about morality and mortality and inaction just in a different context. You use the word postmodern. I think that's a really good one. Of course, if a play from the 1960s was postmodern, you got to wonder where we are now that we've had like five different postmodern movements reacting to all the previous postmodern movements since. How many posts in there? Yeah. Are we, you know sub or extra or super modern at this point (laughs) ultra modern yeah i don't know so before we throw on our our ratings gargus just give us is there any other one or two things you just wanted to 
call out about this play that you either love or, or something that's stuck with you before we rate? I think I mainly got to everything, although I would like to just specifically call out the little moment when they're on the boat and Rosencrantz starts breaking down like genuinely over the confusion of this situation. And Guildenstern shows like the one bit of genuine affection that he has in the film to reassure him that they're going to be able to figure it out. It's like, I think if you didn't have that little bit where regardless what they're supposed to do as characters for both Shakespeare and Stoppard, they didn't have that tiny little bit of humanity and ability to show that they are actually, you know, friends, then the movie would be just that little bit lesser. It is nice when you get a, a softer moment for characters who have that hard edge. I'm just a sucker for that sort of thing. Nice. Well, I guess that brings us to Is It Good, which is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So we'll start with Brian. Brian is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I've said it so many times that now I'm certain I'm saying it wrong. Is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? The 1990 film, written and directed by Tom Stoppard, based off of his play. Good. Do we want to also rate Hamlet by William Shakespeare? Oh. Boy, just like Hamlet overall, not a specific adaptation. Right. Uh, I'm going to go with a two, not good, because <laughs> Shakespeare kept having ideas that he couldn't put into words and making up new words to use to uh, communicate them. And I don't think that's good form. I'm going to go with four in both cases. You can decide whether or not you want to rate Dan the play itself. Certainly, I've not watched every version. Haven't watched the Laurence Olivier like you. In the case of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead from 1990, I really admired the production, like I mentioned a minute ago. There's real horses, there's like puppets, there's masks and ships, and just all this physical craftsmanship that went into it. And it's a great cast, too, with... Uh, such a young Gary Oldman and uh, Richard Dreyfus, like from from Jaws, from Mr. Holland's Opus. So great actors, good dialogue, and it's a lot of like metaphysical, philosophical stuff. So if you're into that, I think it's probably going to be higher for you. It, it was worthwhile. I'm glad that we watched it. Uh, Hamlet itself, as the original incarnation, ranks just a hair higher for me because it originated the meat of the story, especially like the way Kenneth Branagh did it in 96. It has this scale to it that it like I watched the first half hour again this week because that was what I had time to do. And it starts early on with like, I think it's the wedding of Claudius and Gertrude and it's in this huge hall. And just that this, this story is really a pretty, pretty large scale story. It's, you know, a, a nation scale tale of courtly intrigue. So 
I, I, I like it, and it has its place in history, even if Hamlet himself, the person, really, really frustrates me as a character. And he gets some comeuppance for dragging his feet so much, so maybe that's the point. And that's my two cents. What I think they should really do is do a, a production of Hamlet, where after the movie's over, you're just allowed to tackle the actor playing Hamlet. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I want to see Hamlet and... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Actually, like merged into one, the one six-hour movie, or it'd probably be down to like five hours at that point because so much of it already overlaps. The true eternity version. That's the other thing. The one thing I didn't say, and I mean I touched on it, but I didn't say it in the "is it good" section. Is just that being a play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. The movie was kind of long. I thought, you know, t- two two hours basically. It was like one hour fifty minutes. And when it's a play, you know, you fill an evening, you get an intermission, you go use the bathroom, get a bottle of water or something. And so plays tend to be long. And it makes sense that when the the original writer is at the helm of the film, it's going to hew pretty close to that. But I felt like I was 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 pacing sometimes. Gargus, what about you? Is Hamlet and also Rosencrantz and Guildenstern good? Well, I'll start with uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead because I'm far more familiar with that work. And I've been saving a bad word about it. I don't know if necessarily a bad word, more just like a mixed questioning word, which, you know, again, considering the themes of the story, relevant. I've been saving that for the end because ever since I was in high school, I've also been aware of Roger Ebert's review of the film, which at the time, the uh, Chicago, was it the Sun of the Tribune that he worked for? I think it was the Sun. At the time, they were running his negative reviews without any stars. So it's a bit infamous because there's a misconception that he gave it no stars, like worst possible rating he could he could hand out. But he did. He just gave it a thumbs down because they weren't handing out star ratings for the thumbs down reviews at that time. And his argument was, is that like, you know, you have these excellent actors playing out the story. You have this incredibly clever and well-written source material. You have the person who wrote it, both directing the picture and adapting it for screen and making quite substantial changes to it. You know, I've never seen a um, stage production of the play, nor have I read its native script, but I do understand that Stoppard, like, you know, deleted quite significant passages of it and added in stuff that's exclusive to the movie, rearranged things around. You have all these strengths going for it. And Ebert says he still did not like it, because in his eyes, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is inherently a story that is about its medium. It's about theater. It has to be done in a playhouse where you can actually see it happening in the margins and off stage and in the audience to really get what it is saying about Hamlet on a visceral level. And I had that in mind while I was watching this time. And it did occur to me that, you know, when they're going around the palace and listening in on the conversations like through a wall or out a window from another room, it does seem like the movie is straining a little bit to communicate that idea in quite the same way you would get where 
if you were sat in a playhouse and you saw the actors for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern literally standing off to one side, you immediately understand what's happening, both in terms of like in the fiction of the play and in the metafiction. They are actually there off stage, listening in, trying to figure out what's happening in Hamlet. Here it seems a bit labored, so I can see Roger Ebert's point with it. It is maybe not the ideal way to experience the story of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That being said, I also happen to think that um, the story basically being frozen into this one singular form is somewhat to its benefit. Because it makes the whole thing more escapable. It makes it a lot more cruel to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Not only does the play have to go the same way because all the lines have to be said in basically the same way, there's no room for anyone to improvise something or give a different line read or for something to go wrong during the course of the production. Every time you watch Rosencrantz and Guildenstern I Dead, the film, it is exactly the same as the last time you watched Rosencrantz and Guildenstern I Dead, the film. So even though I can understand Ebert's point about it not being quite so immediate a commentary on the nature of theater, it does still work as a commentary on the nature of fiction and I think maybe the nature of adapting fiction. So, you know, I've already laid out my reasoning why this was important to me when I was in high school and college. I've already said, like, what I really like about it. <laughs> But I think in um, deferent that despite the fact that I have this as five stars and liked and one of my uh, top four films on Leatherboxd, in terms of rating on your review system, I think that for once I would have to say just a seven, exceptionally good. It has that tiny little hair of doubt, hair's width of doubt that keeps me from going all the way to an eight. Now, as for Hamlet, I. I don't know if I'm really qualified to uh, speak on it. Like I said, I have not read the text of the play in its entirety since high school. And that was done in the context of studying it for high school. So even if you like reading and analyzing classic literature as much as I do, there's still that thing of, I have to do this for an assignment and I'm going to be graded on that will decide whether or not I can get into college. This kind of blows. But, you know, from what I know, of Hamlet. It's a huge piece of work that is working a large amount of ideas in pretty much every direction imaginable. So there are so many different rich veins of interpretation to a point that like, I don't think that you can have a definitive version of Hamlet. You know, it is so large as an object, it has spread so far and wide as a play, it is being put through the ringer of reinterpretation so many times. There's really no one single truth to it. And as I keep saying over and over again, for a play all about doubt and, and action and uncertainty, what could be more fitting? So, you know, probably a seven. Okay. You know, you know. You, you, you may quote me on that. You may put that on the front of every major literary publication that probably seven. thinks that Hamlet's not quite perfect. <laughs> so then it comes to me. So as far as Hamlet itself, I don't think I can rate the 
play well i i almost can because watching the kenneth branagh version you get the whole thing so it's kind of like i have read it because i've watched that but i i have uh the 48 hamlet at a six very good and i probably put the the branagh one at a seven just because i'm not i don't think every bit of staging he does is perfect and i frankly kind of got annoyed with him as an actor as the movie went he's just a little too manic and he's 35 and that still bugs me but I, I think he does a great job of like showcasing everything about the play that's compelling. And it really just, like Gargas said, it's like a big, it, it's so much to the play. It's like a big tapestry of melodrama and all of this fun, there's, there's depth, there's fun ironies and parallels between stuff when you start looking closely at it. Terrific performance and production. It's just like a feast. And uh, I was really swept away with it, so... Probably, I guess Hamlet itself would be a seven. I do think there's some dumb stuff in it, which is never going to make it a favorite of mine. Some of the pacing stuff is weird. Like, okay, they're on a boat, but oh wait, no, Hamlet's all of a sudden back, and it really does take a while to get to from some point A to some point B throughout it. And why they do a friendly duel when, like, one scene earlier, like they were strangling each other. I that doesn't quite click for me either. I feel like the relationships make less and less sense in Act Five. And then as for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, I'm right on the line of a five and a six because I think it is really entertaining. I do agree with Brian that the pacing feels a little off, and I guess you too, Gargus, that it feels like a play that's filmed sometimes. Other times it really does kind of just work on its own. And I think if it was like a little zestier, just a little shorter and maybe trim some of the noodling. I know that you really like that stuff in there, Gargus, particularly like in that middle bit after they get there. But they're just kind of waiting around. It really did feel like it went on for a while that that might pick it up as a watching experience. But I have to give it credit is it's, it really is clever all the way through and compelling and it really does do like the whole meta thing, parody of a play, but turned meta just so richly and cleverly. And I kept being impressed with like new ideas that it had on how to not be the obvious predictable version of itself. And so I admire it a lot. Um, I guess I'll land on a high good for now. And we'll see if by the time, if I ever write out a review for it, if I talk myself up to a six. But in terms of what's going in the goods record books, we're going to land on a five for that. Nice. So. For what it's worth, both of my fours are higher than the four I gave Mulholland Drive. So. <laughs> You're just coming here to dump on things today, Brian. That's. To, to, to tear down great things. <laughs> I was listening just recently back to the uh, 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T episode, and in that I referenced somebody hiding behind an heiress. So Hamlet has definitely entered my vocabulary. It's it's something that I think about. Definitely it's ensconced in the culture. Yeah, I think that's pretty... I think that's pretty unique to you, Brian. I'm not sure anyone else has really quoted Hamlet before. <laughs> Uh, we're just dumping on Shakespeare all over the place tonight, aren't we? Hamlet, pretty good. Well, no, good-ish. That's, that's what we decided. Right. He didn't write Arc Lives, at least so far as I know. Yeah, start flipping a coin. Oh, God. 
How many heads in a row would you have to get before you started questioning your insanity? <laughs> Twelve. Twelve. That's the number. Eleven. Like, oh, just do one more just to be safe. Yeah. Two, mostly because every time I flip a coin, I lose control, but then it goes behind the desk. So if I get even one head, <laughs> then something's wrong. All right. Well, next week, Brian, we will be watching the 1989 Ron Howard film, Parenthood, starring Steve Martin. Uh, have you ever seen this one? No, this is new to me. Are you telling us something, Dan? I mean, you've, you've been a parent for a while, but why this one right now? You got some, some news? <laughs> uh, well, I'm already a parent. I don't need to become a parent again. But I'm going to use this as a chance to talk a little bit about my dad. So that will be the focus, the, the topic aside from the film itself. So we will be discussing 1989 film Parenthood. Gotcha. That'll be good. Parenthood. I, I thought that you were talking about Parents, the uh, the 1989 cannibal movie with Randy Quaid. I don't know what that movie is, but that is not the one that we are talking about. Thanks for the heads up, just so I don't watch that one <laughs> by accident. If, if someone starts eating someone else, wrong they, like, film. I, I got the wrong one. They, go back to the Google search, the Plex server. Let's find the right one. But Gargus, as always, thank you very much for joining us. Glad, glad to have you bringing in something different to our, our pod. Oh, for sure. I always love coming on. And uh, Brian, I will catch you next week. Gargus, we'll see you when we see you. Have a good one. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And listeners, you too. Tune in next time. Mm-hmm.